It has been appointed and anointed king of Israel. Uh, God's people are now in the settled promised land after having spent many hundreds of years in captivity in Egypt. They've been led up from there. Uh, During the time of settlement, they were ruled over by judges or by prophets. Uh, God's people, looking at the nations around them, said, well, we actually would like to have a king rule over us, God, if you don't mind. Uh, You know, we're getting a bit fed up of the prophets bringing your oracles and your word all the time. So we'd like to have a political system like the other nations around us have. So can we have a king, please? So God says to Samuel, well, I appointed you prophet over them, but could you stand back and let this man Saul take over? Saul turns out as the first king not to be very reliable as God's anointed leader of the community of uh, settled Hebrews in the land. And so he allows David to take over. So David is the second king of God's people uh, during their time of settlement. And David, uh, it would appear, is a good king, a man after God's own heart. He rules wisely and diligently, at least for the early years of his kingship, which I'm going to call ministry, of his ministry towards God's people as their leader, as their anointed leader. Uh, During the early part of David's life, he's writing such wonderful things as you'll find in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall never be in want. And it it talks of this this quiet solitude and attitude that that is reflective between David and his Lord as the shepherd God leads David in his life. Um, About 50% of the commentaries will argue with what I'm about to say just now, but 50% agree. So we're we're on okay grounds here. Uh, I think David was quite a young man when he writes Psalm 23 and talks about the beauty of God's mercy, following him day after day after day uh, throughout his whole life. I reckon he's somewhere about midlife crisis point, uh, kind of my own age, heading towards 50, maybe just in his early 50s, when we come to the story that we have today. David is the king. He's supposed to lead the armies of Israel out once a year to reestablish the territories that God has set as the boundaries for God's people to live in. But if you read in 2 Samuel chapter 11, you'll discover that while David stays at home, he sends the armies out under the commander, uh, under the leadership with his commander Joab in place of the head of the armies. David is at home in Jerusalem, and that's the first thing that we must notice. He's not where God intended him to be before he gets caught in the sin trap that is set for him. David should have been somewhere else doing something else at the appointing and the anointing of God. But he stays in Jerusalem, and I'm paraphrasing here, he's whiling away the day, I guess, spending time watching daytime television or or surfing the net, doing stuff that, you know, the devil finds work for idle hands. David is not doing what he should be doing. And one night, we're told, he gets up during the evening... um, At a rough count, I think he's got about three wives that are there at his disposal for physical relationship and for uh, other activity. But as he gets out of bed, maybe even from spending time with one of these women, he sees another woman bathing on a roof some distance away from the royal palace. Now, I guess that, you know, at that point, there is the seed of temptation being sown in David's mind and heart. And if he'd just seen this woman naked bathing there and gone inside and forgotten about it, it would have been okay. Again, I'm paraphrasing. He goes and gets a little step stool in the binoculars, and he comes out and he has a second look, and something further develops in his heart and mind. And he says, so who is that woman? We discover that Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Guess where he's at? Oh, he's out fighting the wars that David should be leading. So he's out there on the battlefront. 
So David sends for the woman. She comes. She purifies herself. He sleeps with her. She goes home. She sends news to him that she's become pregnant. Now, this is the king of Israel. He's in a bind. What's he going to do? Or he discovers that her husband is out there in the battlefront. Oh, I know. I'll send for Joab. Let's have Uriah put right on the front line of the battle so that when the battle becomes fierce and intense, there's every likelihood that he'll get killed. And just to make sure that he's vulnerable, let's have the army retreat and leave him and a small platoon of people right up there at the front. And that's what happens latterly. But in the meantime, while she's, they're talking about this, Uriah comes home from the front at David's behest. And David says, I want to cover up for the pregnancy. Uh, go and lie with your wife. Uriah is such a faithful servant to David that he doesn't even go home that night, but he stays outside David's door. So David gets him intoxicated with alcohol and tries a second time. But he won't go back to his wife. And so this horrible plan is formed in the heart and the mind of David. Let's kill the man and get rid of him. That's what happens. So in a very short time, this godly man, whose heart is after God's own things, falls foul of a sin trap that has been set for him by the enemy of our souls, even the devil himself. And David finds himself in this horrible position of knowing that he's not only committed adultery, He's also responsible for the death of more than one man as a result of trying to cover up the blame of his sin. And so that's where we pick up the story in chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan is a prophet. When he came to him, he said, There was two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept under his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you as king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore... The sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said, to Nathan, 
I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father, we come to your word, a familiar story to many of us, and maybe completely new to others. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and minds to hear you speak to our conscience about you, the Holy One, would say to us today. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. I'm taking as a text, Second Samuel 2 and, uh, 12 and 7. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. And so God might say to me, Rodney, you are the man, or to other men here, you are the man, or if you're a female, you are the woman, as God speaks to us through his word. I struggled to find a a title to the introduction, but I'm simply called it Man's Worst Enemy. Carl Messenger uh, of the Messenger Clinic in uh, America, and a very beautiful Christian, according to Robert Robert Schuller, wrote many books on the subject of life's problems, books like Man Against Himself, Love Against Hope, The Vital Balance, as depicted in the sculptor outside the clinic in Houston, Texas. But to name a few, one other book that he wrote uh, back in 1988 was a book called Whatever Became of Sin. And in the world where you and I live, sin is not a a word that is... um, very well used or maybe understood. But in the book, um, Carl Menninger uh, traces many of life's problems uh, and the conditions of a world that is full of gloom, apprehension, depression and discouragement to the problem of sin. And he calls for a universal recognition of sin as a prevention against self-destruction. Now, after he wrote the book in 1988, one of his critics appealed Uh, saying, surely there must be two more books written, one entitled Whatever Became of Guilt, and a second entitled Whatever Became of Grace. And I'm going to touch on all three of these subjects briefly this morning. The word sin has disappeared, or all but disappeared from everyday vocabulary, apart, that is, from a a few religious fanatics. Most English dictionaries simply define sin as the breaking of a religious or immoral law. But although the word may have vanished, you know there is a real sense of guilt remaining in the hearts and minds of many people who fail to live in some way or other according to the expectations that God has for human beings. So maybe it's time again to look at what sin means. In its simplest of explanations, it means rebellion against a holy God. It means estrangement from God breaking the relationship, and it also means a missing of the mark that a holy God intends. The primary Greek word for sin is hamartia. Now, this word essentially means missing the mark. It's like if you take a dart or an arrow and you throw it at the board and it doesn't get to its intended target. The the dart or the arrow sins in falling short of where you intended it to go. And God, in his word, has explained that all humanity suffers from the condition of sin. Sin is not just something you do, it is something that you're born into. All of us, like that dart, miss the target, miss the mark of what God intends for us. 
as individuals within our lives. The essential idea being conveyed in the use of that word is that it's a departure from holiness. And, and even this morning, we've struggled to understand what it means to, to, to worship a holy God. What it really means to be so set aside for God's purposes, which is really essentially what holy means. It means to be set aside for God's purposes rather than, than any other purposes. Hamartia means to sin, to depart from God's standard of holiness, to become unrighteous or to fail to live up to what God requires of us. Let's think of that, first of all, in our natural condition. Romans 3 and 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you read Psalm 32 or Psalm 51 and discover after Nathan had confronted David how David feels about his sin, he says there that surely I was conceived in iniquity. Even before I committed the adultery, even before I committed the act of murder, I had this this natural ability towards falling short of God's glory. I was conceived in sin and iniquity. And so it's a natural condition of every human being. James 4 and 17 also says that anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, he or she sins. And so as well as a natural condition, it's, uh, uh, we can sin by omitting to do the good. A sin of omission. We can also have sins of commission. 1 John 3 and 4 says everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Now, almost any story in the Bible uh, would provide a text on the subject of sin, but the incident of David's rebellion provides us with many helpful and revealing insights into the whole issue of sin. So let's think, first of all, about the reality of sin and ask the question, whatever became or whatever happened to the reality of sin? Months after David disobeyed God's will for his life and committed adultery with Bathsheba, he was tormented by guilt. And we see a strange thing happen when Nathan the prophet comes to him. He would evidently not face up to the reality of that sin in his life until God graciously provided the prophet Nathan to challenge him with the words, You are the man. Now, as I've read and reread that confrontation, it just strikes me about how, how this can apply to our own lives. If we know that there is something in our lives that is hindering us from having good fellowship and good communion with that holy God because we've not come and confessed the sin and repented of it duly and brought it to that place where we've received forgiveness, we too can react in the same way. You know, some of you might be standing or sitting in judgment over David and say, how dare he? respond in the way that he did when Nathan tells him the story, this parable about the little ewe lamb. But sin does that for us. It's, it so sears our own conscience that sometimes rather than dismiss sin in the lives of others, we actually become hypercritical of them. And we see them do a little thing that seems to err away from God's standards. And we suddenly stand in judgment over them as David does. Now, he's not actually doing the wrong thing. Remember, he's the anointed one from God who's set as the leader of Israel. He, he not only has to lead politically and to see that society lives together in a balance of harmony with laws and decrees, he also has a responsibility to spiritually oversee the health and the life of the spiritual part of the community. 
And so when something like this comes, he's actually the one who, under God's anointing, ought to sit in some sort of judgment on something like this. So Nathan comes and tells him this story about a man who's traveled from a distance, and the person he travels to visit, instead of saying from, from the abundance of his own flocks or herds, he destroys the life of this one little ewe lamb that is the sole possession of this poor man. And David's enraged by it. Maybe that says something about the way that we respond sometimes towards other people who sin. We're enraged by their sense of wrongdoing, not even recognizing, like David, that we are the ones that God wants to talk to about how we're living. People experience serious guilt problems when they're unwilling to face the reality of their sins. Some evade the fact of sin. You know, me? No. Never. I could never be accused of sin. I'm an upright uh, man, woman. I have a a, a good place of respect and social standing. But others rationalize uh, the prevalence of sin. You know, everybody does it. And maybe even this morning, somebody said, you know, come on, Mr. Preacher Man. Uh, sin is something that our grandparents in the church spoke about. We want to hear a sermon on acceptance or on love or on tolerance. And yet knowing that at the heart of most of society's problem is the fact that we're estranged from a holy God and not living according to his ways, then I think we must come back to address the fact that sin is the thing that destroys us. One commentator has said, the human mind attempts to explain sin away. God's mercy and his love takes sin away. So let's consider the reality of sin. First of all, it's observed in the world. Uh, Read the news, each headline is an admission of rebellion against a holy God. The political scandals, the atrocious crimes committed against people, the abuse of property testify to the reality of sin. Uh, Some weeks ago, we were a little bit horrified to know that the new building that's been provided for Nidri Community Church was being vandalized by those it's intended to help. Do you know what's at the heart and the problem of that? Well, it's sin. And when people respond, by turning from the sin towards the holy God, you know what will happen? The vandalism will stop. There is no real other solution to it. Look around in the broken lives of anyone in, in your family, in your workplace, and the real solution to their problem is that they come and allow God to deal with that which is so pervasive in all of our lives. I suspect I'm preaching pretty much to the converted here that all of you believe in sin. Not in the practice of it, you understand, but believe in its existence. And if you say, no, I don't believe there's such a thing as sin, well, I'm going to ask you if you've got a lock on your front door, or a burglar alarm, or insurance against theft. See, we all believe in sin, we just call it something different. So it's observed there in the world, it's also experienced in our lives. A close examination of our own personal lives will suddenly convince us of sin's reality. Our thoughts, our actions, even our speech at times sadly reveal how far short of God's holy standards each and any one of us fall most of the time. And sin, uh, the reality of sin is also confronted in the world by the Holy Spirit. I know we've looked at this in various contexts in recent weeks, but Jesus taught that one of the main aspects of the Holy Spirit's ministry when he sends them into the world, would be to convince people or convict people about the reality of sin. John 16 and verse 8. When he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world 
of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. You know, if, if you're here this morning and you know that there is something in your life that is displeasing to a holy God, and we also say that the Holy Spirit is present with us as we gather in the worship of the name of Jesus, and you don't feel a sense of conviction for your sin, then something is truly amiss. Because the primary function of the Holy Spirit is not to make you feel warm and excited and happy, although he does all of these things as well. It's actually confront us with the reality that we fall short of God's standard and that we stay confessional before God and we stay repentant before God and that we come and confess our sins on a daily basis. John is writing to Christians when he says, if you say there is no sin in you, you make God out to be a liar. It may not be that we've committed adultery this week or murder this week. But Jesus says, even if you look lustfully at someone else in your heart, you've done that spiritual adultery thing. If you have hatred, such strong animosity towards anyone else, particularly of those of the family of faith, then that hatred is like an act of murder in your heart. That word of gossip that you shouldn't have spoken, even though you only shared it, you know, for prayer. So subtly, the enemy can cause us to harm and hurt other people in sometimes the most unsubtle of ways. And the Holy Spirit comes to confront us on that, on the reality of sin. Secondly, I want to think about regretting sin. Whatever became of the regret over sin? Again, you will need to, if you don't know the stories already, uh, familiarize yourself with Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. So you know something of the depth of the sorrow that King David eventually does feel as a result of what his sin has done to his own life, the lives of others, but particularly what is done to his relationship with this holy God. That 20 or 30 years previously, he's writing fantastic psalm songs about. Surely this God will be with me every day of my life. He'll never leave me. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear any evil. How sad it is that a couple of decades on, this man who burns burns so brightly for God is at a place where he doesn't even realize his own sin. It's just become hypercritical of others. So whatever became of the regret over sin, Nathan confronted David with the reality of his sin. And when David acknowledged his sin, he felt deep regret about it. Regret always, ought always to be the result after the confrontation of sin in anyone, anyone's lives. First of all, we ought to regret it because sin hurts God. Sin hurts God. Towards the end of chapter 11, we're told there that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It's not the word made him incredibly angry. It's not that word. It's a broken word. It's a displeasure. It's, it's as if the sin that David had committed had hurt the holy heart of God, had wounded God's holiness. And there's one of the modern songs that we sing. Um, I don't know if we've actually sung it in the chapel since we've been here, but the lyrics say, Your holy heart was wounded 
And I don't know if you've ever thought about what your sin does towards God. Um, I grew up in a fairly strict uh, evangelical discipline. And one of my sisters particularly, I must be careful when I say this, in smaller churches you can get away with using names and places because it doesn't get out there. But I realize there are tapes and there are downloads from the internet for anything that I say. But one of my sisters in particular, and uh, if you're listening to this then, you know, I really do love you. Uh, but as I grew up as a child, it was a very strict, you know, Jesus is watching you, Rodney. And it was very hard and sort of austere. And, and whatever I did made God angry with me. And I kind of felt that God was out there to kind of spoil my fun and games as I grew up. And then I realized what sin really does. It doesn't anger God in the sense of it would anger a, a capricious God or a, an angry parent who doesn't know how to control their temper. But my sin actually hurts God, wounds him, causes him such deep disappointment that he actually weeps over my sinfulness. And I need to learn to regret that my rebellion wounds God's heart. If you're a person here today and maybe you know that you're not walking the way that God intends you to, and maybe within the evangelical tradition that you've grown up and you feel that God ought to be really angry with you and, and kind of smack you about a little bit to get you in order again, can I tell you God doesn't feel that way in the slightest about you? Look at Jesus telling the story of the prodigal father. Often we call it the story of the prodigal son. It's actually the story of a loving father who allows his child to wander away until the child's in a place living in his pig-swill environment that the boy himself realizes that this is not good. And that even the servants at home have a better lifestyle and condition than he does. And he will return, no longer to be a son, because he doesn't count himself that worthy. He really regrets taking half, his inherit- taking half the inheritance and going off and wasting it. But he returns home to a loving father who's looking for him, waiting for him. Child of God, your father, his heart is wounded. And when you turn... And run back to him. The loving embrace of your father will wash away all the pain and all the regret that you have. But we must regret our sin because it hurts God. We secondly need to regret it because sin destroys self. God allows each of us in life the choices of accepting or rejecting him. People can rebel against God and destroy themselves. Again, I could take of any number of examples from the Bible to show the end result of those who ignore God's commands and their guidance in their lives. But some turn back to God after their rebelling. Others sadly went on to an eternal judgment with the full weight of their sin still upon them. Compare, if you will, just briefly, momentarily, Judas Iscariot and Simon Peter. Who's the rogue in the Easter story? Well, traditionally, Judas gets a very hard time from us good-living Christians. Think about Peter. Judas didn't actually say, I'll die for you, Lord. But Peter did. Peter's a rogue in the Easter story. But unlike Judas, who betrays the Lord and doesn't turn back, Peter realizes, has regret over his sin, realizes that that is destroying his own internal character. And well-being. And he turns through repentance to receive that wonderful, wonderful reinstatement by Jesus. Who will do the same for you and I today. 
when recognizing in our sinfulness, we'll turn to him and seek his face. And thirdly, we need to regret sin because it impairs human relationships. Do you know sin separates? It separates people from God initially. But it also separates people from people, nation from nation. Families divide, churches split, communities are alienated from each other. The sin that hurts God, it hurts us as well and impairs our relationships, especially with other Christians. Think of that brother or sister in Christ that you're not in fellowship with. And we justify it, we qualify it. But you know, we can't before a holy God. The thing I've come to realize about sin is that there is no excuse. If Jesus hadn't died on the cross and somehow we'd have worked this out for ourselves, then maybe we could start to reason that we can justify the fact we don't talk to someone, we're not in relationship with another Christian, we don't meet with them for fellowship. Before the cross of Jesus, Dear friends, there is no excuse for us not living in harmony and within the unity of the Spirit. It impairs human relationships when you and I sin. Refer you again back to Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. What we need to do more than anything else today is to have genuine sorrow over sin. That is a godly sorrow that will lead to repentance. That's what we see in David's life. And so let's, having spent a few moments on that rather sad and morbid subject of regretting or sin, let's think about what it means to repent from sin. Whatever became of repentance of sin. David saw the reality of his rebellion, and it brought profound regret to him. But godly sorrow led him to repentance. And he repented and he committed his life anew to the Lord. First of all, I want to say that repentance has a supreme place in the life of any Christian or would-be Christian. Repentance, actually, far from being something that you and I should shy away from and feel that we don't want to engage in because it makes us look bad, repentance is actually God's gift to you. A number of years ago, um, I heard a preacher say that, and it was just one of these things that lodged in my mind. Repentance is God's gift to you. Today, if you're caught in sin, the only way out is to accept the gift. Of repenting from your sin and turning from it and turning towards God. Uh, Nathan was God's appointed prophet to call David to turn in God's direction. Uh, I'm not sure whether you'd have liked the commission to go to the one who's the head of the country, the head of the religious establishment and confront him in his sin. Um, I guess not. I'm looking for Colin there to see what fancy that job, Colin. I don't think so. Because this could have ended up in Nathan's death. But David's heart was right to hear the story as it came and everything worked out good. Do you know the main task of the preacher today, as the preacher in the church in any era of the church has been, is to call people to repent. It's the main task of the preacher. And uh, so we ought to pray for Peter and for Richard and for Colin as week by week by week they have the responsibility to come with God's word open and saying, folks, doesn't matter how you're living just now, but we're calling you to turn and to live more like this book says. Because that's no easy task. It's no easy task to stand and to call sometimes stubborn, obstinate, I mean, loving, gracious, kind people, obviously, but 
you know, all of these other attributes as well. To turn to God's word and live according to this way. Repentance has a supreme place. It also has a profound meaning. Repentance does not just simply mean that you acknowledge your rebellion and regret it. It actually means to change your mind to the extent that you will change your direction. It's a kind of military word that says, about turn, quick march. You're heading in one direction and you hear the commander of the universe give you this quick snap command, sinner, stop in your tracks, turn right through 180 and head in the opposite direction. It's a good illustration of what it means to repent away from sin and towards God. It's a profound meaning and it also produces wonderful results. When David repented, his life moved in a new direction, took on a new meaning and significance. Repentance removed the guilt of sin and afforded to him a new life in Jesus Christ, even a thousand plus years before Jesus dies on the cross for David's sin. Now don't get me wrong, there are consequences as we see in David's life. It's not a clean slate and everything's going to be hunky-dory and rosy from that moment on. There are consequences because the way David has been living has actually meant that God's name has been blasphemed among the Gentiles. The nations have looked in and said, well, if God's holy people behave like that and nothing happens to them, then it must be okay for us to live like that as well. The prophet says, God has taken away the guilt of your sin, but the son conceived to you illegitimately will die. And you can read on in the story and just to see how bitterly David weeps over that situation when that comes to reality. He also says, because you've lived by the sword, others will raise the sword in rebellion against you. Read on into the story, you'll discover that particularly with Absalom, David's legitimate son, he does that and takes the kingdom away from David at one stage. Sinner, there will be consequences for the way that you have lived in the past or the way that you're living in the present. You may have to live with the governmental rule of life not being the way that God first intended it to be. But even in your sin and your rebellion, you can have forgiveness for the sin and the guilt of the sin can be taken away. So in conclusion, turn around, repentance is God's gift. Some years ago when Jeanette and I were in Canada, we went to a place known as Hell's Gate. Um, I remember my father as, as a child telling me one time that someone had inquired of him, have you ever been to the devil's elbow? And he says, no, but he's often been at mine. Well, uh, Jeanette and I have been to Hell's Gate. Uh, Hell's Gate is part of a huge canyon on the Fraser River with as yet, here's a challenge for some of the young men and women in the church, rapids that have not been successfully navigated. If you don't make it, don't blame it on me. On the highway above the canyon wall, there was a sign as we drove down the highway that said, turn around at Hell's Gate. And uh, I commented to Jeanette at the time that that sign was a sermon in itself to every motorist that passed by. And you probably will know that I've never ever used this illustration anywhere else before. Turn around at Hell's Gate. How about you? Do you need to heed the warning? Accept the invitation to turn around at Hell's Gate? What will become of you and your sin? Will you try to explain it away? 
Oh, it's just the way I am. I can't help myself. My parents were like this too. Rationalize it. Everybody does it. It's the life in our society. Everybody's like this. Or will you let God take your sin away? If during the last half hour or so God has been saying, come to me with your sin. And I invite you to make a prayer commitment that maybe you've never made before. Maybe you did mean it, make it before, but maybe you need to make it again because you know there's something in your heart that estranges you in your relationship with God and with other people. It's hindering you from living the Christian life that you want to live and that God desires for you to live also. Let's all bow our heads. Let's close our eyes, and if you want to pray along with me, then let me lead you in a prayer of confession and repentance. Simply pray these words quietly in your own heart. Father, I admit that I am a sinner in need of your mercy and grace. I am so sorry for trying to live my life without you. I come to you now in repentance of all my sin and accept your offer of new life in Jesus Christ, your Son who died for me on the cross. Please send your Holy Spirit into my life to make me into the person you want me to be. With heads still bowed, with eyes still closed, if you prayed that prayer just now, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Just to lift your hand up to acknowledge that. If it's the first time you've prayed a prayer like that and you want to know further what it means to be a Jesus follower, after the service is over, can I ask you just to come and meet down the front of the pulpit and some of the elders maybe leaders from Christianity Explored, can invite those who are mature Christians to come down and meet with those who have prayed that prayer. And some of the hands raised, I recognize you already as my brothers and sisters in Christ. If there's something going on there that you need to talk to somebody about, you want help through a difficult time, then also you can seek that help today. Or you can contact either myself or another member of the pastoral team or the elders through the office. It will be a real joy recognizing that we too are sinners in need of God's grace. We judge you not. Father, thank you for all of those who have responded to the invitation to follow Jesus and for your children who have been erring away from your standard of holiness. Thank you that your Holy Spirit has quickened us to bring us back to that place where we know sweet communion again with you. Father God, bless you for your goodness. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. One final caption on the screen there for you. The human mind attempts to explain sin away. God's mercy and love takes sin away. Maybe you can further make it part of your response as we stand to sing in closing number 551.
If you're using the book, the words will appear on the screen out of 